ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here at RN and at the ABC Listen app. We're spending most of the show today in the US because it's the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to news like this. If a candidate declared himself the harbinger of the apocalypse, you'd think his career in politics was pretty limited. But Donald Trump is promising a day of reckoning, just as the Bible predicts, and he's doing just fine with Republican voters. Two serious Christian conservatives, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Trump's former Vice President Mike Pence, have also entered the Republican primary, but can they draw religious voters away from Trump? Associate Professor David Smith of the US Studies Centre has been studying the entrails of this contest. The few polls that have been done, specifically looking at religious voters, indicate a closer and less stable picture, with Trump still ahead, but nonetheless, probably a lot of evangelical voters seriously considering DeSantis as an alternative. It's going to be hard to tell until we really get into the primaries how the votes are actually breaking, but certainly DeSantis believes that there are evangelical votes there for him. He's campaigning in Iowa at the moment, his first campaign was in front of hundreds of people at an evangelical church. So he believes that the votes are potentially there. DeSantis is a Catholic. This no disincentive to evangelicals these days? Ever since the late 1970s and the early 1980s, when Ronald Reagan pulled together the great conservative religious coalition, which exists until this day, I don't think that denominational standing has really been an issue for religious conservatives at all. America used to be very divided along denominational lines, and you could see that as late as Kennedy's presidency or even as late as the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973, where evangelical Protestants were initially reluctant to oppose it, partly because they saw opposition to abortion as a Catholic issue. But that really changed with Reagan. These days, the big religious divide in America is between religious conservatives and everybody else. So religious liberals tend to flock more to the Democratic Party, and that's where secularists tend to be found as well. But religious conservatives are very much embedded in the Republican Party and in the conservative coalition. And it doesn't really matter at this point whether they are Catholic or evangelical. Mm. And DeSantis has certainly been making very direct appeals to evangelicals. He had quite an eyebrow-raising ad last year narrated by his wife suggesting that God had chosen DeSantis as a protector, which is very much appealing to evangelicals. So I don't think that his personal denominational standing matters very much. Yeah. If your principal identity is as an ethno-nationalist, your grievance is immigration, I can see how Trump is your guy still. If your Mm. identity is sort of a blue-collar worker from once a unionised, what we might call upper working 
working class background and your grievance is that you've been forced into early retirement, your son will not get the same sort of job as you did. I could see why Trump is still your guy. But if your principal identity is a conservative church-going Christian with traditional family values, now that you have a choice, why would you choose Trump over DeSantis? We have to remember how much things changed during Trump's presidency. In 2016, Trump lost in Iowa because two-thirds of evangelicals voted for Ted Cruz. But by 2020, 81% of white evangelicals were voting for Donald Trump in the general election, which is higher even than George W. Bush got, a very strongly identifying evangelical Christian. What happened in the intervening four years was that Trump really dragged the evangelical mainstream to him. What we saw was Trump's support within evangelical circles, even before other evangelicals got on board, had always come from Pentecostal and charismatic Christians. Pentecostal and charismatic Christians in America are huge in number. There are tens of millions of them. But politically, they've usually been marginalized from the evangelical mainstream. A lot of evangelicals don't trust them. They see them as overly physical, irrational, too superstitious, concerned with these strange practices like speaking in tongues, which a lot of mainstream evangelicals have traditionally been fairly wary of. Now, this group, they were behind Trump from the beginning because Trump was such a radical figure, such a break with normal politics, that to many of them, he represented the potential fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Mm. David, you make a point in a fascinating piece that you did for The Conversation recently that Trump is actually more apocalyptic. DeSantis is Mm. more orthodox uh, in a smaller uh, way in his appeal to religious conservatives. Trump is apocalyptic. So DeSantis does what Christian politicians traditionally did, which was to present politics as an instrumental thing that Christians could use to achieve desirable policy goals. And this is what DeSantis is going to concentrate on in this campaign, that he was the governor who signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida, that he was the governor who made it illegal to talk about homosexuality in an age-inappropriate way in schools. These are policy goals that evangelical Christians want and have applauded. And he's going to claim that Trump actually has a very thin record when it comes to policy. But Trump's appeal is not in this orthodox use of politics for policy ends. Trump presents himself as an apocalyptic figure, as somebody who is actually going to essentially bring about judgment on God's enemies. Trump was initially not adept at speaking in Christian language, but he got a lot better at it as his presidency went on, especially being surrounded by these Pentecostal and charismatic figures. And when he's out of office, the very dark imagery that he uses has a lot of resonance with evangelical Christians who think that the country has reached such a point of spiritual crisis driven there by governments who are actively hostile to Christianity, that something very, very radical 
mm. is required to save the country. And Trump presents himself as that radical agent of God's will who will ultimately bring about judgment on God's enemies. Yeah, yeah, the v very biblical image, the day of judgment. Also, I suspect, a certain Trumpian-style resurrection. <laughs> Absolutely. What Trump is appealing to at the moment is a death and resurrection narrative. Trump's election in 2016 was so extraordinary in the first place, defying all the predictions of the polls, defying, in the end, the popular vote, that many evangelicals believe, one way or another, that he will triumph again. That his loss in 2020 was just the appearance of a loss, was just the appearance of death, that resurrection, one way or another, is coming. Of course, for a serious Christian, though, that's almost blasphemous uh, for Trump to behave like that. It does raise this question, David, of just how authentic your religious belief or your religious identity is or is being an evangelical if you still support Trump so fervently, just another form of identity that you wear rather lightly. Certainly, evangelical as a label of identity has become very powerful. Polling actually suggests now that more and more people are adopting that label without necessarily being orthodox, practicing Christians themselves. A lot of what Trump does is a real affront to Christian orthodoxy. But then again, a lot of what Trump does is an affront to orthodoxy of all kinds. He has been an affront to Republican foreign policy orthodoxy. He's been an affront to Republican economic orthodoxy. This is part of the whole package of Trump. And part of what Trump appealed to was evangelical dissatisfaction with their own leaders. Evangelicals really felt that they had had very little payoff from years or decades of supporting Republicans who promised that they would bring about a conservative restoration of America, but never did. Even George W. Bush, who the journalist Hannah Rosen once called the closest thing that evangelicals had to a pope, when you look at his record as president, apart from a temporary ban on stem cell research, he never really brought about the kinds of sweeping policy changes which many evangelicals were hoping for. Mm. Trump, on the other hand, had the inarguable achievement of ending Roe versus Wade. He appointed three conservative justices. And this was what brought about a policy goal of 50 years standing. You've mentioned a couple of times there abortion and uh, Trump's three appointments to the US Supreme Court being instrumental in overturning Roe versus Wade, which was guaranteeing a constitutional right to abortion. Abortion still not banned, by the way, in the United States, but no longer having that constitutional protection. Why has the abortion issue turned so savagely against Republicans? Because opinion polls, including most recently, I think the Pew Research, shows that Americans still have deep reservations about abortion, and yet this is not working for Republicans. No. When Roe versus Wade was overturned, a lot of Republican state legislatures immediately started moving towards legislation, which, if it didn't ban abortion outright, was close to an outright ban on abortion. So the legislation that Ron DeSantis has signed into law in Florida, a six-week 
ban, that may as well be a complete ban on abortion, given how many people don't even know that they are pregnant at six weeks of pregnancy. So the fact that so many states move towards these really radical restrictions on abortions. Yeah, including, that, by the way, no exemptions for rape and incest in abso- some cases. Absolutely. That really alienated a lot of people who may have been uncomfortable with the number of abortions taking place in the US, but nonetheless think that it should be legal. It was basically those actions and the rhetoric of a lot of Republicans led to this complete reframing of the debate in terms of, is abortion actually going to be legal or not? When that question has been put directly on the ballot, or when questions about constitutional protection have been put directly on the ballot, even in conservative states like Kentucky and Montana, majorities have voted in favour of keeping abortion legal and keeping state constitutional protections for abortion. Whereas this used to be an issue that really mobilised Republicans and Conservatives after Roe versus Wade, it really gave them something to fight for, this long-term goal. Now that they've actually achieved that goal, this issue has become a political asset for Democrats. This presents a really tricky dilemma for Trump and DeSantis. Trump recognised that one of the reasons why Republicans did so badly in the midterms in 2022 was because of the abortion issue. He has said that privately, even though publicly he still certainly claims a lot of credit for overturning Roe versus Wade. It's something that he would not want to be an election issue. However, DeSantis sees this as one of his potential opportunities to actually outflank Trump from the right and to pick up evangelical votes, is to say he has signed one of the toughest abortion bans in the country, and to say that you know Trump doesn't support that level of restriction on abortions. Now, that might help DeSantis pick up evangelical votes. If he becomes the Republican candidate, though, that's going to be a very, very difficult thing for him to defend in a general election. How much more religiously, let us say, expressive is Ron DeSantis compared with, say, George W. Bush. DeSantis, he seems to go even further. DeSantis, though, actually has tried to wrap it in a more secular language. He has tried to wrap it in the language of fighting wokeness. This is what he's been doing in Florida, saying Florida is where woke goes to die. He's fighting against woke school administrators and even woke capitalism, woke Disney. He's wrapped it all up in this language that has a broader appeal beyond evangelicals, even though it certainly appeals to a lot of evangelicals. It's really about the reassertion of traditional gender roles, traditional family structures, and of shielding children from things that conflict with their parents' beliefs. So it's, it's actually a very traditional kind of conservative Christian program, but it is wrapped up in a more secular language to try to give it more appeal to conservatives and even to some non-conservatives who think that wokeness has gone too far. David, it's always instructive to speak with you. Thank you very much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. My pleasure. 
Associate Professor David Smith of the US Studies Centre. And this is the Religion and Ethics Report, where you'll hear about the links between religion and the news that's shaping the world. One of the main contests in next year's US elections will be for Hispanic voters. They have favoured the Democrats, partly because of their Catholic heritage. But among Hispanics, there's now a big shift away from Catholicism. So what are the implications for the election? El Hardy is the author of Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, and she wrote about this shift for the online magazine Unheard. The figure has gone from 67% in 2010 to 46% now. So that's obviously a really significant shift. Some of it is accounted for, I think, just in the wider cultural phenomenon that we're seeing in in all sorts of places in, in the Western world. People that might have traditionally ticked the box saying that they were Catholic or Anglican or something like that will now say that there are none, N-O-N-E. But with the American Hispanic population, it's really interesting because it is also quite a profound religious shift. So what we're really seeing is something that's being mirrored in a wider political trend, actually, which is that there's a lot of Hispanic people moving away from the Catholic Church and they tend to either become evangelical and vote Republican or they're sort of becoming big city liberal secular people who are voting Democrat. You've spent a lot of time in Latin America and we've discussed that for your book, uh, Beyond Belief. The trend is happening there too. Is America just catching up? Latin America is certainly seeing huge amounts of Catholics convert to evangelical and particularly Pentecostal Christianity. So this is something that we're definitely seeing a a real decline in Catholicism in all of the Americas. Brazil, more or less as we speak, Pentecostals are overtaking Catholics this year, which is, you know, incredible considering I think it was about 3% of the population was was Pentecostal in, in 1980. So they've undone 500 years of Catholicism in about 40 years. Mexico is still really a a bastion of Catholicism, but Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, they're rapidly Pentecostalizing populations as well. Do Hispanics in America have the same reasons for their migration from Catholicism to evangelicalism as those south of the border? In a lot of ways, yes. It's often said that the great driver of people towards evangelical or, or Pentecostalism is sort of use them interchangeably, but but these are by and large people who are going to the Pentecostal faith, which I would say is, is a branch of the evangelical Christianity. The large driver of that is usually said to be health and wealth. So it's really helping people with their problems in the here and now as, as well as the ever after. There was a Pew study in 2014 that said almost half of Hispanics who were raised Catholics but became evangelical or Pentecostal said that a really important factor in them finding a church was one that reaches out and helps its members more. So whether it's necessarily true or not, there is certainly a perception in the community that these evangelical Pentecostal churches are really helping people more and probably more embedded in their community and probably more a more authentic representation of their Christianity than the Catholic Church. It's a real challenge, though, to our thinking, Elle, because, you know, Catholics will point to extraordinarily wide networks of social services, especially across the United States. And if Catholic bishops are generally conservative on questions of immigration, they're anything but they're quite an irritant to uh, White Houses, both uh, Democrats and Republican pushing for more liberal immigration. This doesn't seem to show up, though, in these figures. 
No. And I mean, if anything, the proportion of people, often much younger Hispanics who are becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S, they're saying that a large part of this is due to the conservatism of the Catholic Church. It's being perceived as becoming more conservative. But obviously, at the same time, there there is, you know, a significant proportion of, of these Hispanics who are turning to a different kind of conservatism, which is that that sort of classical Republican-American evangelical conservatism. So it's certainly not cut and dried. Yeah, and this is a really fascinating point. How is this about fitting in to American political culture as well? Because there's always a political tinge to a lot of American religion. There is. And something that we've seen globally that is a really big thing when people become a born-again Christian They really see a demarcation in their life before and after. It's a really big moment in their life. And and often, you know, it might involve giving up the drink or gambling or getting your family back together or something like that. These born-again moments are really, really big thing in people's lives. You know, for some people coming over the border and then maybe becoming born again, it's sort of a a spiritual and it's an actual experience. They're being baptised as a follower of Jesus and becoming an American. America's got a lot of problems, but they're coming from places with a lot more problems. And they really see it as getting to America as this huge moment in their life that has that almost born-again feeling. There's no more um, American religion than evangelicism. I know it's misunderstood, but it's still a very powerful factor. What about the role of the so-called prosperity gospel embraced by some Pentecostals? What appeal does that hold? Once again, it's this idea of you coming to America to make a better life, um, to give your children a better life, and that your faith and your hard work is going to be rewarded. A lot of migrants really, I think, feel empowered by that. It gives them you know, something to pull themselves up with, and they see it fits into the American dream and to the life that they want to live, and, and they often embrace it. We're heading into a political season in the US in readiness for the 2024 elections. Your piece deals with some really hard political realities. And to some extent, Elle, I get the impression the realities are not good for Democrats. What did you find? This is really the most fascinating part for me. I mean, I think anyone that's that's sort of casually watched American politics for some time, there's been that thing that, oh, is Texas turning purple? Is Texas going to be a blue state soon, you know, because of this Hispanic migration? And that would obviously, you know, just have a seismic effect on the overall electoral counts. Yeah, the the votes that, that come from the electoral council. But it really seems to be turning the other way. And this is largely from what we can see at the moment, on the back of the Hispanic population. So, for example, the Rio Grande Valley, which goes along the Texas-Mexico border, some of these counties are 98 99% Hispanic identifying. These have had massive swings just in the last two elections. For example, there's um, Zapata County. Hillary Clinton won it by 33 percentage points in 2016. It flipped entirely for Trump in 2020. Neighbouring Star County had a 55-point swing, so it was 60 points up for Clinton in 2016. Biden won it by just five. What's really fascinating is when you sort of overlay that with the religious changes in the county as well. So in 2010, about 33% of Star County claimed that they were part of a religious congregation. By 2020, that number had grown to 73%. And it's really difficult 
I, I think almost impossible to to see these these two changes in religious and political affiliation as as something that you can separate. There seems to be a sort of social conservatism in these areas that are seeing people really identify with the Republican Party, even in spite of, of all Trump's rhetoric about building the wall and and that perceived notion that this was a almost un-American place, that this was a you know, almost a place that needs to be cleansed in some pretty horrific rhetoric. And that just really doesn't seem to be the case of what people are thinking and feeling on the ground. There's always a revelation in what you write, Elle, and, uh, and that is very, very interesting. Elle Hardy, she's the author of Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Elle's also the co-host of a fascinating podcast called False Prophets about the Hillsong Empire. But we've been discussing a recent piece of hers in Unheard magazine, and we'll put a link to that. Thanks for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report, Elle. Always a pleasure. Chat GPT isn't just for cheating on your essays. Could it also shape what people in churches, synagogues, mosques and temples hear from the pulpit? Religious sermons are supposed to come from the head and the heart, from a preacher steeped in knowledge of the religious text. But could chatbots take over the job? Johanna Booyah from The Guardian America has been speaking to rabbis, imams and priests. Funnily enough, it was used by a rabbi in New York in order to essentially plagiarize a speech. And he used it to plagiarize a speech intentionally. He had a point that he was trying to make, but a rabbi did use it to write a sermon. So in the case of a sermon for this rabbi, or it could be a priest or it could be an imam, what sources would chat GPT use? What sources would they plunder? Well, it really depends on what iteration of ChatGPT you're using. There was a a chatbot, for instance, that was specifically catering to Muslims and Muslim texts. It was called Hadith GPT, and that was specifically based on authentic sources of Hadiths, which are the sayings and narrations of what the Prophet Muhammad's life was in that case in particular there were it was based on authentic sources in other cases you know for instance in the rabbi's case he was using just a generic chat gpt search so this is pulling from all of the internet's information and knowledge to write a very specific sermon if it's pulling though from the entire body of uh well, let us say material on the internet, do any of these people worry about the religious interpretations they're going to get if they ask ChatGPT to to do their sermon? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting in having the conversation with various faith leaders about this because that was sort of my assumption, especially myself as a Muslim looking at Hadith GPT and knowing that ChatGPT and generative AI, they're not, it's not a knowledge machine, right? They're not giving you an answer to a question. They're responding with what is the most likely response to a question like this. And so if you're applying that type of a framework to answering questions about religious texts, like, of course, there's going to be instances of inaccuracies. You know, the we've already seen ChatGPT has hallucinated, quote unquote, college texts and academic papers. 
I assumed that these faith leaders would sort of have that same worry and hesitance about using it. Interestingly enough, in the three cases that or three faith leaders I spoke with, they said that this was just like Google, right? It's just another tool where you can search for answers um, or use it as a tool to help you make your writing a little bit more convenient. Obviously, with the caveat that you have to confirm things just like you would for Google, but they weren't worried about it. They really weren't worried that it was going to be over relied upon, that it would ever take the place of a faith leader or a scholar in a community because they thought that it would actually do the opposite. It would actually make people feel like they needed more of a human connection outside of this sort of conversation with a robot. Mm -hmm. Johanna, though, you as a journalist would also know this. I mean, if you're relying on any tool to just scoop up information that's gathered on the internet, you're going to find stuff that's Islamophobic, you're going to find stuff that's anti-Semitic. What do you as a journalist, what would your concern be if not just faith leaders, but any public figure was using chat GPT? For one, misinformation. Forget all of the vitriol that exists on the internet and the racist remarks and, and, and all of that, but just the misinformation that is pretty rampant on the internet is being scooped up, or at least we can assume that it's being scooped up in these models that are training these large language models. And the reason why I say we assume it's because these companies are not telling us what sources they're training their data on. We don't always have a clear idea where they're getting their information on, which is a problem because as a journalist, you do have to look at the source in order to authenticate the information that you're getting. And you do have to find ways to contextualize the information that you're getting. And I guess, of course, these programs like GPT can be hacked. You refer in this really interesting story in The Guardian to Hadith GPT. We've been talking about it there that draws on the sayings from the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Is it conceivable that someone could hack that Hadith GPT and you end up relying on it and spewing forth all of this bile. Yeah, I mean, I think everything and anything is is as hackable as someone's desire and will. I haven't done too much reporting and research into, you know, the vulnerability of these systems to cyber hacks, but we have seen ransomware attacks and cyber hacks go up in the last couple of years. So I imagine that is a concern. In the case of Hadith GPT in, in particular, as I mentioned in my story, the system itself, when you would seek answers from the search bot, it would come with a caveat that said, this may not be exactly accurate. You know, Islam is a religion that is passed on from heart to heart. So make sure you consult with other people. And Islam is a very textual religion. And so Muslims were very concerned about this chatbot trying to almost take the place of or emblemize what a scholar would typically do. And Joanna, the other interesting point that you bring out is that not just Islam, but all of the world's great religions aren't really just about the word, are they? Right. There's something that ChatGPT simply cannot replace in religion. What's that? I mean, just that human connection and the interpretation, you know, it's just not the text at all. And I, I think that's one thing that the faith leaders whom I spoke to can continue to bring up, which is that 
they actually thought that this chatbot and ChatGPT would bring people closer to their faith communities and their faith leaders because they were desperately, or the chatbot is so devoid of humanity that they would need some sort of scholarly input to better understand the text that um, the chatbot might be based on. And of course, it couldn't replace the essential pillars of Islam. It can't replace almsgiving. It can't replace prayer. It can't replace fasting. It can't replace the physicality of one's faith, can it? Yeah, it can't do your religion for you, certainly. (laughs) Did religious leaders, though, suggest any fear that artificial intelligence could somehow corrupt the transmission of their religion? No, and it was surprising to me. It was surprising to me, but they, each one of them, while they recognized the limits of the technology, said that this is just another iteration of, you know, what they called like Rabbi Google or Sheikh Google. You know, it's just another version of people turning to technological services to find answers to some of their their basic questions, or maybe they're a little bit more complex questions. But they said that they've already dealt with this. You know, they've done a lot of work making sure that people know and understand that the answers that they found on Google are not going to be sufficient to understanding where their faith may land on particular topics, especially if they're complex. I'm thinking, though, Johanna, if you're a student of the religious texts, and you simply ask ChatGPT to write your essay for you, Mm. you're not really absorbing what you need to. You're not excavating those texts yourself in the historic way that an Islamic or a Jewish or Christian scholar might, are you? No, and I, and I think this is the same problem that you're seeing in the academic world, right? You know, why do teachers have such a problem with this other than the fact that they're, the students are essentially plagiarizing because these are based on other people's texts and essays is that they're not learning. You don't actually get to learn if you simply Google something or search something and then copy and paste the text that you get out of there and submit that. Johanna Booyah, who writes all her own stories for The Guardian America. And that's it for the show this week. You can find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app. We're in the Society and Culture section. Or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the program, maybe leave us a review. Thanks to Hong Jang and Hamish Camilleri. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.